Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Now I keep threatening to remember to have a little question-answer time afterwards, so I think we may uh, try to do that again. Give some of you a chance to ask some questions that have come up in your minds recently. A couple of announcements, uh, other announcements before we get started this evening. First of all, um, just a reminder that uh, sooner or later we actually will start some construction in here, but nothing, no news, so nothing's changed. And then also mark on your calendars that on Sunday, June, July 18th, there will be a reception following the morning service for uh, retirement reception for uh, Phil Smith retiring from the uh, United States Marine Corps. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's, we're thankful we can be here this evening to study your word, that your word is a... Uh, it refreshes us, it encourages us, and strengthens us. And as our Lord prayed, it is through your word that we are sanctified because your word is truth. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study the word of truth, that you will help us to understand these things and that uh, God the Holy Spirit will make them clear to us and that we can see how they need to apply to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we are continuing our study, Hebrews 12, and we have come down to approximately verse 12. Pick up a little review before we begin. And uh, Jack, you may want to note on both the note on uh, on Tuesday night's class and this class that they overlap. Same thing will happen next week. So that would be a good thing for people to know. Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. Let's get a little review so we see the context of what we're looking at here in Hebrews. Remember I said that there are five major sections in Hebrews that are related to teaching. These are teaching sections, and each of these sections begins with an exposition or explanation of uh, some important point, some key element that the writer of Hebrews is making to uh, those to whom he is writing. 
after he has that introductory uh, section, that instructional section, it fo- it's followed by a practical challenge, or as I called it before, an exhortation. That's what an exhortation is. It's a practical challenge. And then some or most of these uh, have a section within the practical challenge that is a warning, a warning to believers, not that they can lose their salvation, or not that if you don't do these things, you won't really save. That's the lordship salvation position, uh, the position that you weren't really saved or you lose your salvation, rather. That's the Arminian position. But if you really understand grace, which God gives you a gift with no strings attached, that salvation is not based on anything we do, who we are, what we've done, because we can't ever do anything that really merits the righteousness of, of God. We just can't ever be good enough. It's a free gift. And so that means that God gives it to us, no strings attached, can't be lost, can't be, uh, it's not conditioned upon acting a certain way after you receive it. The gospel itself, the gift of salvation, is just that it's a free gift. Now, there's other things related that are dependent upon growth, obedience, things of that nature, but not salvation itself. And that's what the warnings all relate to. So as we look at this this last section in Hebrews, the instructional part was in chapter uh, chapter 11 where the writer focused on faith and gave all the different examples from the uh, Old Testament uh, heroes, from these Old Testament leaders from uh, Enoch to Noah to Abraham, Moses, uh, Joshua, uh, all the way down. Uh, and then that example leads to his conclusion where he makes the application, starting in verse 1, Therefore, because of what we learn from those Old Testament examples, we are to do something. And the first thing is to focus on Jesus Christ. That's the key element. He is the example of endurance. And that's chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 12, 1 through 29 is the practical challenge first two verses focus on Christ as the example, the focal point of the believer. Then in verses 3 through 11, the section that we have just finished, the focus is on the training of the believer, the training of the believer. And unfortunately, I think that this section has, the translators have used the word chastening, or perhaps some translations use the word discipline, which conveys the negative punitive side of discipline, uh, chastening. And it, it, the, really the Greek word we looked at is paiduo, and it has to do with training. It is what a, what a coach does when he takes a young child who manifests the uh, certain athletic abilities and he begins to work, to train, to discipline, to form, to shape the, this, ch- this child so that by the time they become an adult, they are skillful in the use of their of their natural talents, and that athletic metaphor lies behind this whole uh, this, this this whole section from verses uh, one through eleven in this in this section. And so, it's the idea of training. Training involves both positive motivation, encouragement, but it also involves uh, the negative punishment when there's when there's failure. Uh, Training has to do with recognizing that to achieve anything that we want in life, to achieve any uh, worthwhile objective in life, 
then there are going to be things in life that we're going to have to say no to. There are going to be things in life that we're going to have to say, well, that's fine for other people to do, but if I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve, then I have to restrict certain things in my life so that I can achieve the goals and objectives that I have set for myself. And that is the essence of discipline. And we looked at the uh, Old Testament passage that is quoted in verses uh, 5 and 6 here uh, from Proverbs that emphasizes Proverbs uh, 3, uh, 11, and 12. And the word, therefore, that's used for uh, rebuke, or excuse me, used for chastening there is a word that has to do with binding. And that's what we do. We bind or restrict ourselves in certain areas. So that's the idea, and it involves endurance, because every one of us have faced this, where we've been on some track, we've uh, decided to uh, try to reach a certain goal or objective, and we have put ourselves under some system of rigorous uh, discipline, self-discipline to achieve that goal, and at some point we just want to say, well, to heck with it, and we just sort of want to throw off those restraints for a little while uh, and and not always be under the under the gun or under that that rigid discipline. And so, uh, endurance has to do with it, with hanging in there and and staying with the challenge. So, twelve three through eleven, the believer endures training in order to reach that goal of being a useful, mature believer that's productive spiritually and that is serving the Lord with his life from the position of strength of a mature believer. We then come to a conclusion that it's found in, actually the conclusion goes from 12 through 29, but I break it into two sections. The first part is a conclusion indicated by the therefore of verse 12. Uh, therefore, we must become strong spiritually to enjoy the blessings of a full reward in heaven. That's a focal point here is to enjoy that full reward, the full inheritance. And that's where we have the overlap with what I taught on Tuesday night in Revelation chapter uh, 21 uh, and verses uh, 7 and 8, specifically in verse 8. All those passages that relate to promise of reward to the overcomer. And so that is all part of this doctrine. This is just one facet of the doctrine that's taught in the New Testament related to inheritance and these special rewards to uh, believers who stick with it and who grow to to spiritual maturity. Then we have uh, an explanation of why that is important, of how this flows from the superior new covenant. Of course, the new covenant that's mentioned here has to do with the way in which the new covenant that will be established in the future between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which was uh, the, the basis was established at the cross. Jesus said that uh, when he observed the Passover meal and he took the element of the cup, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. And so he, he connected his death to that sacrifice related to establishing the new covenant that would be that was predicted in Jeremiah 31 uh, 31 and 32 for Israel and it is not a covenant with the church but it is a covenant that all benefit from it's with Israel for Israel for the house of Judah the house of Israel but all but it is the basis for all the future blessings in the messianic kingdom 
uh, and beyond. And so that's in 18 to 29. So tonight we're in that section of 12, 12 through 17. Now, in order to understand what goes on here, we have to understand a little bit about figures of speech. Verse 12, which will, where we're starting this evening, says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Huh? What does that mean? How do you, how do, are we to understand what that means? If we look at it in context, just go back a couple of verses to verse 10. The writer says, for they indeed, that is talking about earthly, uh, earthly fathers, they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them, for, but he, that is the heavenly father, he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. That's the goal of discipline is to uh, participate or share in the holiness of God, not positional righteousness, which we believe is imputed to every believer at salvation. But this is experiential or productive righteousness as the believer grows to spiritual maturity. He is, we call it progressive sanctification, or it is the progress of the spiritual life or spiritual growth. So that as we go through that training process, the result is that the righteousness of God is not just a positional reality, it becomes experientially, uh, it experientially works out in the life of the believer. Uh, then verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Again, we come back to that same idea, the production value of the, of the growing believer. It produces the peace, peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. See, you, you know he's, he's saying something important. He's shifting in, in, into a more metaphorical speech here. But what is he, what is he saying here? What is the significance of this? And in order to answer that, we have to sidetrack a little bit in order to investigate this particular idiom and to learn just a little bit about uh, the use of uh, metaphors and figures of speech in literature. This is an extended metaphor. But first we'll talk about a metaphor. A metaphor is an unstated comparison where the writer is saying that one thing is another. Whereas a simile, which is also a comparison, a simile is a stated comparison. Uh, a simile is a, an explicit comparison, whereas a metaphor is an implied comparison. A simile says that, usually uses the word like or as. One thing is like something else. Uh, that uh, Scripture says that when we are cleansed of sin, we are as white as snow. See, that is a stated, it is an explicit comparison comparing white to, to snow. We see other examples here that I have on the screen. This is from uh, classic uh, work on figures of speech in the Bible by E.W. Bullinger. He writes, while the simile says all flesh is as grass. So he's, that is comparing flesh 
to grass. There's something about flesh and something about grass that is parallel. So you could picture it as overlapping circles and that there's a lot of things about grass and a lot of things about the flesh that are different, but there is one characteristic of both flesh and grass that are the same, and that's the point of comparison. So a simile states it explicitly, all flesh is as grass, whereas a metaphor carries the figure across at once and just directly states it, as in the original quote from Isaiah 40, verse 6, all flesh is grass. See the difference? There's no as or like. That's the distinction between the two. Now, something else that Bullinger said here I thought was interesting because in other times and other uh, topics when we've talked about interpretation and understanding figures of speech as part of interpretation, we've talked about the problem that occurs uh, and when we talk about the fact that uh, as conservatives we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. And some people say, well, literal, uh, wait a minute, what do you mean literal? You mean that um, you don't believe in figures of speech, you don't believe in idioms, you don't believe in in um, uh, symbolism, things like that? Yes, we do. That is all within uh, the, the, the meaning of literal interpretation. Literal interpretation does not exclude figures of speech. Literal interpretation is not a wooden, uh, superficial literal, literalism like that. It is... A uh, uh, taking the word in it and and reading the text of Scripture so that the words carry the normal plain sense of everyday uh, of everyday language. Now there are different types of literature we have in the Scripture. You have legal literature in the Torah, in the Old Testament. You have poetry, and much of the prophets are written in poetry. Much of, uh, of course, the Psalms are all poetry. Proverbs are all poetry. Most, most of Job is poetry. And in poetry, words do not have the same narrow sense of meaning as they do, for example, in, in legal literature. If you are reading uh, a contract, and a contract talks about a, a lake, then you can be pretty sure that that contract is going to state the precise location of the lake, the dimensions of the lake, and all of those kinds of things. Whereas if you are reading a Shakespearean sonnet and there is a reference or allusion to a lake, you know that that could be a figure of speech. It could be. You really have to look at the context because uh, the idea of a lake can have a broader, a broader sense of meaning than you would find in uh, legal literature. So the context always. Uh, always has some sort of effect on how we interpret words. It doesn't change their meaning, their ultimate core meaning, so that white becomes black or uh, red becomes a house or something of that nature. It just has a little bit broader uh, uh, sense to it than in uh, poetic, poetic language. And when we use words in figures of speech, they also have a little broader sense to them. And you can figure out what a figure of speech means by comparing that, that figure in other literature. I remember some years ago I got involved in a discussion with somebody who was trying to make the absurd point that, um, you can't, that Isaiah chapter 14 did not refer to the fall of Lucifer, that, that um, 
that actually that 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 whole all those chapters were just nothing but one extended metaphor. And as bright as that individual was, I had to say, well, I don't think you understand either metaphor or the text of Scripture. Uh, if you apply that to, I'm, I told this individual that uh, I was really glad he had an accountant because if he applied that system of interpretation to his ta- the way he read the tax form, he would be in jail. And that's unfortunately the case with most people. When they read something that's important like an instruction manual or um, uh, guidelines on how to uh, fill out their income tax form, they will interpret in a normal, plain sense, but then they want to somehow, when they go read the Constitution, for example, all of a sudden they want it to mean something other than the normal, plain sense of the language and make it fluid instead of fixed. It's, it's legal literature. So we always have to understand that, that even though we have uh, uh, certain th- figures of speech, there are rules for understanding figures of speech. And I ran across this in Bullinger, which I thought was really interesting. He said, in talking about metaphors, he said the two nouns, that is the nouns that are being compared here, such as white is snow or um, that uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, flesh is as grass, that the two nouns are always to be taken in their absolutely literal sense. Now, even though it's a figure of speech and we say the, that, that all flesh is like grass, we have to understand flesh in a literal sense to understand all of its literal characteristics and attributes, and we have to understand grass in its literal sense and understand all of its actual literal characteristics and attributes in order to find the point of comparison that the writer is making between these two nouns. That's why we say even when, what I mean when I say even a figure of speech must be interpreted literally. And once you, if you get beyond the literal interpretation, you're really just making up the meaning. So you, you have to stick with those normal rules and canons for, uh, for interpretation. So uh, Bullinger made that point, and I thought, well, that looks like that's an important point, and I'll just uh, emphasize that. And he uses that uh, same illustration explanation there in, the, um, in his example in the second paragraph. For example, all flesh is grass. Here, flesh is to be taken literally as the subject spoken of. Grass is to be taken equally literally as that which represents flesh. All the figure lies in the verb is. In other words, is is where you pick up that comparison and and you understand that. Now, Bullinger wrote the beginning of the 20th century, a more recent book. And for those of you who like language, those of you who write, this is the new reference book that you should have in your in your reference library. Uh, it's written by uh, Garner, Brian Garner, uh, Garner's Modern American Usage. The most recent edition just came out last year. He is a Texan who has been... Uh, uh, just uh, interested in grammar and the uh, details and microscopic details of language and usage ever since he was in elementary school, he says. And this is the standard. The, it really replaces for us an older work called Fowler's uh, English Usage. Fowler was English. That's more British usage. This is the uh, first major reference point reference book on on, uh, usage, and it is just incredible. I picked up a copy a little over a month ago. It's the kind of thing you just want to 
sit down and read lots of different things in there because you learn all, all manner of different things. So he defines a metaphor as a figure of speech in which one thing is called by the name of something else or is said to be that other thing. Unlike similes, which use like or as, metaphorical comparisons are implicit, not explicit. Okay, now the, there's a classic example here. I didn't even think about using this when I uh, uh, started this lesson, but just keep your place in Hebrews 12. And let's go back into the Old Testament. This is uh, probably one of those parts of the Old Testament that you haven't uh, used a lot, so it's not going to be, uh, the pages won't be turned. But this is in uh, just after Proverbs. You have uh, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes and then Song of Solomon. And in Song of Solomon, we have a description of of the um, Shunammite woman. Now, if you were to translate this literally, and I've seen a picture done like this somewhat facetiously, uh, you, you would not have a very attractive individual, but this shows the use of metaphor in Scripture. Behold, you are... Beautiful, my love, you're beautiful. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Yeah? Song of Solomon 4. Song of Solomon 4, verse 1. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Now, were those literal dove's eyes behind the veil? No, see, he's making an unstated comparison between that her eyes are like dove's eyes, but he doesn't use like or as, so it's a metaphor. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, that's a lot of fun to deal with that. How in the world, ladies, would you like to have your hair compared to a flock of goats? Any of you been out on the farm or ranch somewhere with a bunch of goats? You know that there are a lot of things about goats that you do not want to be said about your hair. But if you are out on the hills of Galilee and you see a flock of goats coming down over the side of a, of a ridge as it flows beautifully and they, they, you don't see the details of the individual goats, you just see that beautiful movement, that is the image that he is in, invoking. But it's a simile. He's, it's a stated comparison. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount uh, Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. He's emphasizing they're all nice, white, even uh, teeth, uh, like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one which bears twins. See, one side looks like the other side. None is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Uh, now, pomegranate's pretty hard, kind of scaly looking, but the comparison is color. Has nice red, rosy color, but for him, a pomegranate color. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Rocky, scaly, bumpy, right? No, no. Elegant, thin, uh, supports her head well, beautiful. So that's just an incident of comparison there. Okay, let's go back to back to our passage. So we have an extended metaphor. We have a metaphor that runs through chapter 12. It sort of disappears a little bit in the section from verse 3 down through verse 11. And 
Uh, so it's a little bit dormant, but it's there in the imagery of the discipline, the paiduo. The, just think in terms of the discipline of the athlete, the, the training of the, 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 uh, the runner that's going to race in the, in the, uh, in the stadium in the, in, in the, um, in the contest. Now, back, go back to verse one. The writer says, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that first verse sets the metaphor. We're talking about running a race, running, we're in a contest. And in that contest, there are witnesses. They don't directly observe us, literally, but he uses that in terms of the imagery. And those witnesses are those that have run the race before us, those that are mentioned in chapter uh, chapter 11. So the, the metaphor here is that the spiritual life is like running a race. Now, you don't get in the race by works. You get in the race by grace. You become a contestant by grace. You're able to get into the starting block by grace, by simply trusting Christ as your Savior. There's, there, you don't have to do anything to earn that position. But once you're in the race, then there are going to be different kinds of rewards for those depending on how they perform in the race. And so he's going to talk about the, using the race there as the metaphor for the spiritual life. Uh, he digresses, beginning in verse 3, to the training that God provides for every believer so that they can run the race well. And some are going to run well, some are going to sprint at the beginning and fade out in the middle, some are going to do a pretty good job uh, pacing themselves, but they don't quite make it to the finish line. Others are going to run the race well and make it to the finish line. And re- as we see, Paul uses that same analogy in uh, 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 3 gives us the uh, the, the uh, description of the judgment seat of Christ that at the end, when we are all taken to be with the Lord in the air and we go to heaven, there's a judgment seat or evaluation at the Bema seat, and all of our uh, works are evaluated not to see if we get to heaven, but in terms of what we do, what our roles, responsibilities will be when we are uh, in heaven. And so there will be those who are who have different levels of rewards, but there are some who completely fail. They, they trip and fall coming out of the starting blocks. They never run the race. They, ne- they don't do anything. And so they lose rewards, but they don't lose salvation. Now, this whole idea of discipline comes from observance of the Lord. We saw back in Hebrews chapter 3 that he was disciplined in his life. God trained him so that he would be that pattern for us of, um, for our sanctification. So we are to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now what I'm pointing out here is that the, the key is endurance is in any race or any contest. Uh, to prepare yourself, you have to be disciplined or trained. That's paiduo. But this, the problem is that we, the problem is giving up. The problem is becoming weary or discouraged. Now, there's two different words that you see in the English in verse 3. 
lest you become weary, which is the word komno, which I pointed out, I believe, when we were studying this verse. It means to tire with exertion, to labor, to weariness, to be worn out, exhausted, uh, even to be discouraged. So it overlaps with the second word that we have there that's uh, translated discouraged here. And if you look at the New King James translation, uh, they're consistent, or the translator was consistent in translating the second word, ekluo, as discouraged in verse 3, and then also as uh, discouraged down in verse 5, in the quote from the Old Testament of uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 3, and that, that, in that quote. So, um, a clue always used both places. They, they're very similar words indicating weariness and, uh, discouragement. A clue brings out an element different from Comno in the, uh, emotion behind it, the becoming discouraged or weak. So that's the, that's the problem is that we become discouraged, we become weak, we don't persevere, we don't endure to the end of the contest. And so the writer goes on to describe the that you have to endure chastening. And the chastening there, of course, is the discipline, the training. If you endure training, God deals with you as with sons. This is an adult son. And so it emphasizes the maturity aspect that comes as a result of the growth that takes place in the life of the of the of the believer. So the metaphor that we see that runs through this section builds on the image of running the race that is set before us. It's that contest where there are uh, those in the stands, the spectators, the witnesses. It brings to bear the training metaphor under the uh, translated in English with either chastening or discipline, but it has the idea of training uh, someone to complete a task. And the success of the competition is related to how well you and I as the individuals respond to the training and remaining disciplined in the race so that we hang in there to the end and not give up, give out, or quit. And so that is the problem that he is addressing here is the believers he's addressing want to give up and quit. And so he gives them a challenge in verse 12. Therefore, he is saying in light of what I've just described, uh, the solution is to strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The question we have to ask here is what does that mean, strengthening the hands and uh, the feeble knees? The issue is that now that we have to properly interpret this metaphor, this understand this idiom, we have to see is this a metaphor to return to fellowship? Is that the primary thrust here? Uh, that is one interpretation that I have heard is the idea here is to, is to recover or return from disobedience to obedience. But I don't necessarily see that as the main thing. He hasn't been going through a section here where he's focusing on you've been disobedient, now you need to be obedient. That's in the backdrop. I think that's included, but I don't think that's the main thrust of the metaphor here. He is, or is he, the metaphor, uh, more specifically addressing the issue that we need to advance and continue to grow and to become strong spiritually and not to regress and become weak and give up. Now we can think of an athlete 
in any endeavor. We could think of somebody perhaps even in the arts, in, in piano, in music, in dance, that requires discipline, ongoing discipline and endurance in achieving the goal. And to excel, you have to have a good coach, you have to have a good trainer, and you have to focus on the end game. But what does it mean here when it says that we have to strengthen the hands uh, that hang down? Strengthen the hands that are hanged down. Well, in order to understand this, we have to realize that this comes out of the Old Testament. Just like so much in Hebrews, we can't just interpret it in isolation from an Old Testament context. Both of these verses that begin this next section, both 12 and 13, are quotes or paraphrases that come out of Old Testament context. So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Seems like recently with all the time we spent in Isaiah in both, in almost all three studies, we've almost done a side study on, on Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. Now Isaiah 35 is one of those great and wonderful chapters in the Old Testament and in, uh, in Isaiah that focuses on God's promise to Israel that no matter how much they go through in history, how much, uh, how much uh, horrors they go through, how many times they may be taken out of the land, that God is going to remain faithful to them, that he, no matter how much persecution they go through, no matter how, uh, how much they uh, are defeated in battle, that how much chaos is in their lives, eventually God is going to fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to give them the land, and he will bring his anointed to the land, the Messiah, to rule over over Israel, and in chapter 34, the focus was on the day of the Lord's vengeance in Isaiah 34:8, and this speaks of that uh, future time of judgment on all of the nations. And so, chapter 35 then speaks of the time after that, which is the time of the messianic kingdom, when God will restore all uh, Israel to the land. And the Messiah will rule, and it will be a time of absolute, of absolute perfection. And so, when we look at Isaiah chapter 35, we must understand verse. Uh, the verse that we're going to look at is down in verse, uh, is in verses five and six, uh, or excuse me, in verses three and four. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Uh, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So look at the context. The context, as I pointed out in 34, is judgment on the nations. The nations are judged in chapter 34. And then starting in verse 1 of chapter 35, the focus is on uh, the glories of the messianic age. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Now, that verse is sometimes applied to what uh, the modern state of Israel is doing today and how they have turned the uh, wasteland, the barren country that was under uh, Ottoman rule up until uh, the Jews began to return in the late uh, 19th century and have just done a, just an incredible job. The economic miracle 
uh, that has occurred in Israel, especially in the last 40 years, is almost unprecedented in the world. There are two great books out right now if you're interested in it. There's one by George Gilder called The Israel Test and another one by uh, Dan Sr. called The Startup Nation that goes through just all of the incredible things that are taking place in Israel. And the, the Startup Nation is fascinating. I've read about half of it now. And one of the things that's, that he points out and goes into is the um, is the uh, interdependency in Israel in between uh, industry and business and the military, which is fascinating because you have just the opposite in the United States, which is very very sad, which um, which he points out. But in Israel, because you have universal military service, everybody comes out of high school and they go into the military, and actually competition for the better units in the Israeli army began as early as 13 or 14 years of age, much like in many sections of uh, of the United States competition for certain colleges will begin very early at 13 or 14 years of age. But there it's competition to get into uh, certain units in the Israeli army because they know that that people who have come out of certain units uh, have had tremendous, tremendous success in business afterward. And because everybody uh, stays in the military until uh, they're 45, they stay with the same unit they originally trained with, and so they're, they're, they're together all the way through. They maintain those relationships uh, throughout uh, much of their uh, early professional career. They are in, and in, in, in Israel, in the way the, the culture of the Israeli army works, there is a tremendous amount of uh, freedom to your junior officers, which you don't have in most armies, especially in the U.S. Army. And so there's a, they have situations that they faced with terrorists and other things that are immediate, and they don't have time to go up the chain of command to get answers. And so you have uh, junior officers, uh, 22, 23 years of age, who are making decisions that would just blow your mind in life and death situations that in many cases you would, wouldn't have anyone lower than the rank of, of major making decisions like that in, uh, in, in the U.S. Army. Now, when they come out of that, uh, come out of the military and they go to work for, let's say, Intel or Microsoft or some other uh, company over there or Israeli company, and when they go in for a job interview, the first question they're asked is not where did you go to college or what was your degree, and the first question is what unit did you serve in in the military? The person that is interviewing them knows the unit. He probably has an uncle or cousin. It's a small country. He's got somebody, next-door neighbor, who served in that unit. He knows uh, people in that unit, so he wants to know uh, what unit he served in. And he's going. once he finds that out, that's going to tell him a lot about the abilities and capabilities of this particular individual that he's interviewing. In the U.S., you go to some uh, Fortune 500 company, you've come out of the military, uh, you've come out as a captain or a major, and you go in and they look at your resume, and they talk about, you talk about all of the things you did in the military, and when it's over, they say, okay, yeah, but, but what kind of experience do you have in business? Because we, once we went into a volunteer army in the uh, mid-'70s, uh, we, there are very few people, I mean, the percentage of people in business that, w- that went into the military became less and less and less, so that the chances are very great that when you go interview, if you're coming out of the military, you're going to interview with somebody who has no idea what the military does, thinks all you do is sit around and shoot people. 
and and has no idea that there are any skills or abilities that you learned in the military that could possibly benefit their corporation. And this is really sad, and, and it, there's all kinds of unintended negative consequences from that. And in Israel, there's all kinds of unintended positive consequences that have come out of that. And it's often said that um, that because of agriculture and all of the innovation, uh, this has produced uh, this kind of culture there of of tremendous innovation and initiative that they have produced a, a, they've made the desert blossom in both a literal way sense and a uh, a figurative sense. But that's not what 35.1 is talking about. 35.1 is talking about the fact that there will be a meteorological and agricultural and geographical overhaul of the land during the millennial kingdom. It is not going to be done through technology. It's going to be done through the miracle of the Messiah, who is going to bring this joy and this blessing to the land. And so it's in, and the result of that is that it glorifies God. That's the last two phrases of verse two. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And then in verse 2 we read the same kind of phrase that we have in Hebrews. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So he's, the, the address is to those who have survived this period that we call the tribulation, the time of uh, Jacob's wrath, the time of, of Daniel's 70th week, that, uh, that they are weary, they're tired, they've been fighting, struggling in a defensive position, embattled for the last... Um, Seven years, especially the last three and a half years on the verge of defeat, they are fearful. They are uh, terrified because the armies of the Antichrist are surrounding them. And what happens is your God will come with vengeance, that is with justice. We've studied that word in the past. It doesn't have the idea of personal vindictiveness, but the idea of bringing just retribution. Its emphasis is on the justice of God. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you and deliver you. So when we look at that passage and we look at the phrase, strengthening the weak hands, the weak hands then is it seems to be an idiom to describe those who are fearful, those who are weary of the struggle, those who are on the verge of of giving up because they seem to be overwhelmed by uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous odds. Now we see a, a parallel verse uh, to this in Zephaniah 3.16. So you have the same, Hebrews is picking up this as a quote from Isaiah 35, but you have the same phrase in Zephaniah 3.16. So let's turn to Zephaniah 3.16. Zephaniah is in that section of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. Now the last three are Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They're, they're the post-exilic uh, prophets. Haggai, Malachi, um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah is the last pre-exilic prophet before Haggai. So you have, uh, it's the fourth from the end 
of the Old Testament. And Zephaniah was a colleague and contemporary of Isaiah. So his message parallels the message that Isaiah is giving. This is in the 7th century B.C. It's the same time period we've been studying on Sunday morning in our study of Second Kings, the time period of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Hezekiah. Uh, it's the time period when uh, Isaiah is predicting that ultimately the southern kingdom will fall just as the northern kingdom fell. And it is a warning that even though God will bring his discipline, his punishment upon the nation, he is not leaving them, he's not deserting them, he will eventually fulfill his promises to them. So when we come to Zephaniah chapter 316, we read that it says, In that day, and that refers to the same future time period that um, Isaiah was referring to, God says, Do not fear Zion, let not your hands be weak. So what exactly does that mean? Well, let's, let's just look at the context a little bit and go back to the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is an indictment on Jerusalem and Judah. Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel has already gone out into uh, divine discipline, been conquered by the Assyrians, and the people have been deported. Zephaniah 3 is an indictment now of the southern kingdom, just as Isaiah brought an indictment, especially in chapter 1, with the famous passages on the woes against uh, against Judah because of her unfaithfulness to God. And so chapter 1 begins this same way, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. This is talking about their spiritual rebellion against God and their spiritual defilement, their spiritual pollution, because they have worshipped all of these other gods. They have been disobedient to the God who gave them the uh, Mosaic Covenant. And so they have been in rebellion against him, and it has defiled them and polluted them uh, spiritually. Woe to the oppressing city. Once you get away from God, then you lose your anchor point of justice. Justice doesn't come out of a horizontal uh, comparison with comparing one person, one nation to another. Justice ultimately must have an ultimate reference point, which is the justice of God as an absolute, which is what we're going to get into beginning in verse uh, verse 5. She, once you, once any culture divorces itself from that absolute reference point of the justice and the righteousness of God, then justice becomes defined by the creature and defined by the government. And it always deteriorates into tyranny. You had some of the most horrible tyrannies in the world, in the ancient world, that knew, in the nations that knew nothing of God. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Many other cultures were, it was the elite, it was the governing powers that governed for their own sake, their own benefit, and nothing was known of justice or righteousness. Well, when Judah, when Israel in the north did the same thing, and then Judah in the south, when they disobeyed God, divorced themselves from God, lost that connection to the ultimate reference point of God's justice and righteousness, then they began to oppress the people and the people became selfish and self-centered, and uh, that's why Isaiah and the other prophets condemned them 
for social inequity, not that it was the government's problem to solve the social problem because it was the individual's responsibility to take care of the needs of others and the social problems, take care of the widows and the orphans, not the government's problem, not the government's solution, but the individual. When the individual became divorced from God and divorced from an understanding of of that objective reality of justice and righteousness, then he became more and more self-centered, and so the society became uh, became unjust. And so they are. Uh, Jerusalem is called the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah were in complete rebe- spiritual rebellion against God. They said, God, we're going to figure out, we're going to do it our own way. We're not going to listen to you. And then there's an indictment of the leadership in verses 3 and 4, the princes, the judges, the prophets, and the priests. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. They're wild beasts. They're ravenous. Her judges are evening wolves. They come to scavenge and to take what isn't theirs. Uh, they leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets, uh, these were not prophets who were serving God, but they were false prophets. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And then we see the contrast. You can only understand the flaws if you can compare it to the absolute purity and perfection of God's righteousness. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Now, here we have the verse on the screen for you to look at because I want to show you what the writer does with these words. The Lord is righteous in her midst. That is the Hebrew word uh, tzaddik, which is the word standard word for righteousness, referring to the absolute uh, standard of God's perfect character. It's comparable to the Greek word in the New Testament of dikaiosune. God is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. And this is the Hebrew word of all, uh, which means unjust. God will do no unrighteousness. See, God is perfect, and he cannot have anything to do with any creature that is less than perfect. And since all creatures are less than perfect, how do we solve the problem? Ah, we solved that problem at the cross because when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. When we trust Christ, God gives us Christ's righteousness. He imputes it to us. Same thing that happened with Abraham, Genesis 15:6, and his and his faith was reckoned or imputed as righteousness. And so that means that uh, God then is able to have fellowship with the creature because he gives the creature who believes on him his own righteousness. That doesn't make you perfect. We still sin, but legally we have been given a new status because of that righteousness. So the Lord is righteous in her midst and will do no unrighteousness, that's of all. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but what? The unjust, there's that word again, of all, the unjust knows no shame. So the contrast is between God, who is absolute righteousness and absolute justice, and the leaders in Israel at this time, the, the princes, the king, the judges, the prophets, the priests, 
All the people are under condemnation. They are all unjust. Later, Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, as we read on in Zechariah, or Zephaniah here, God begins to speak in verses 6 down through 13. Uh, he is going to speak about the, not only the indictment against Israel, but how he is ultimately going to restore Israel. And he starts with his reference to his own justice in verses 6 and 7. I've cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I've made their streets desolate with none passing by. If I have executed justice by destroying these other nations who are not mine, who are not called after my name, then how much more will I execute justice on Israel who is called by my name? That's his argument. But he says, even though I will bring this kind of judgment on Judah, and Judah will be taken from the land, it doesn't say that directly in this passage, but that's the implication we know from the, all the other prophets. He says that there will be a day when he will reassemble the people in the land. This begins in verse, uh, in verse 8. The focus goes from judgment on Judah to the judgment on the nations, and then uh, in his fierce anger he judges the nations in verse 8. And then in verse 9 he says, Then I... Um, I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord from the beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Uh, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, my dispersed ones are the dispersed of Israel. Uh, in that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds uh, in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. There's a removal of the unjust in Israel. And there is a rewarding of the humble, the those who have followed God. Uh, he says in verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. There's our word again of all. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall... Uh, feed their flocks and lie down, and no one uh, shall make them afraid. And then there is rejoicing, verses 14 and 15, that God has taken away their judgments, and he has become the king at the end of verse 15, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. And then verse 16, and that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. That's our phrase again. What's he talking? It's contrasted with fear. And what we what we see here is that this is again a figure of speech called a metonymy. You never studied that in school, but that's a technical term where you talk about the effect for the cause. The cause is fear. The effect is weakness. Because of fear, because of uh, of uh, discouragement, then you become spiritually uh, weak and weary. And so uh, the uh, verse in Ze Zephaniah 3.16 says, Don't fear, let not your hands be weak. So what we see from all of this is that this, this imagery that's used in Hebrews 12.12, 12, and we're not going to get any further than that, has to do with... Um, becoming spiritually uh, weary and, un, uh, uh, and almost unwilling to go forward with the struggle. In Job 4.3, we have the same 
imagery. So it's a very old idiom. Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Those with weak hands are those who are willing to give up in the struggle. Philo, who was an intertestamental uh, Jewish writer, used a similar idiom when he compared the Israelites in the wilderness who wanted to give up the struggle and go back to Egypt to weary athletes who dropped their hands through weakness. So in conclusion, what we see is that the phrase describes the one who due to fear, worry, uh, weariness, or exhaustion is about to quit the race and give up. In that condition, he can't win. So what's the solution? The solution is going to be strengthen those hands and become strong. And how do you do that? Well, that's what we'll see the next time. It's done through a study of the Word. It's done through shifting your volition, your focus to the Lord Jesus Christ. That goes back to the early uh, challenge in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 3, when it says that we are to consider Jesus. For consider him who endured such hostility. That's the command. That's how we strengthen the hands and strengthening the hands, as we'll see next time, is an aorist active imperative. That's the immediate aorist imperative means this is what you have to do right now. This is the priority item. So it, it, it implies confession of sin and restoration to fellowship, although that's not its main import. The main thrust of this whole passage is to start becoming strong. If you're out of fellowship, you need to get back in fellowship. If you're not, if you're in fellowship, then you need to start growing and putting your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not strictly an idiom that's talking about just confession or restoration to fellowship. It could include that. If you're out of fellowship, then do that. If you need to go, uh, if you're in fellowship, then go forward. What's interesting is it, the section starts with that aorist active imperative of strengthening the hands. And then the subsequent commands are present imperatives, which talk about ongoing action after you have taken that initial action of strengthening the hands. So therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble needs, and then you have ongoing action of making straight paths for your feet so that we'll study this next idiom again next time. Again, this is a quote coming out of the Old Testament and we have to understand what that means. So we'll come back and pick up verse 13 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be encouraged. May we not grow weary in the struggle. May we continue to advance in our spiritual life. Uh, may we recognize that you are the one who strengthens us. You are the one who gives us the ability uh, to go forward, and you do this through your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I know Tinker did. He's been waiting for a month. And if, would you go back over um, chapter 11, verse 40? 11.40? You want to go all the way back there. Okay, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm, uh, I keep saying I'm going to do these questions, so we're going to do one. 11.40. Um, God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The, the thing that he's provided better for us, we're going to see that is developed even more when we get into the next section in Hebrews 12, um, uh, 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that was to speak better things than that of Abel. That becomes the motivation because for us, God provided something better, which is the, the spiritual life of the church age related to the new covenant. 
and that um, uh, that then is uh, leads to the completion uh, so that they are not complete. That is, the Old Testament saints are not complete, they, that God is not going to complete his plan apart from us. Okay, does that help? Okay, all these, that is, the verse before says, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. See, it's incomplete. But God having provided something better for us, that is the new covenant, another track, that they should not be made complete. See, that's bringing to completion those promises apart from us. Okay, save your other question for next time. At least we got one question in. I'm going to, I'm going to remember to do this. Not get so caught up in, uh, in what I'm covering. Okay, we'll see everybody Sunday morning, I guess.